If you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, we're moving through verses 5 through 12. What a great song. Thank you for the band in leading us in that. All that we need is Jesus. Now, some people after singing that song will say, um, I need a lot of other things in life, uh, more than just Jesus. But if you understand who Jesus is, you understand that he's the centerpiece of all that you need. In other words, um, you might think you've lost your job or your relationships aren't doing so well. So what you need is relational help. What you need is an income. Can I assure you this morning, particularly if you're not a follower of Christ, what you need is Christ. Then the rest of the stuff, you look for his gracious and kind hand, but your joy will be centered in him. Thank you for that song. Certainty is something that... Uh, Luke is talking about here, if you remember last week, he said that, that he's writing to an individual by the name of Theophilus. And he's writing, it says in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Uh, certainty of the Savior, we've called the study. We're in the second week. It's really important to have certainty. There's uh, times in which we bank on having certainty. We think we know what's coming, we know what's ahead, but uh, the longer I live, the more I realize that um, when in this world, you're not certain of many things. Uh, there was a particular Saturday that uh, we take time to do chores in our home. So we assign the chores out. My kids know when I put on my, my boots, uh, they're going to put on their work attire. I mean, it's kind of like the thing. When they see my boots, you hear groans in the house. We're going to do something. Well, this particular day, we assigned different things out to different kids. Uh, one of my daughters, Anna, was assigned to uh, polish up things, whether it's uh, wood in the, in the house, uh, make things dust-free. That's the idea. And she had this brainstorm. Uh, she had this idea. She was spraying wax on some wood. She said, wow, this would make the stairs shine. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, but that doesn't excuse what happened next. I didn't know she did this. So this is at the end of the day she was finishing up. She applies a hefty coat of wax to the wooden stairs. I'm laying in bed. And at the time, it's very important to understand this, my shoulder had been damaged through years of playing football. And at the time, I was seeing a doctor trying to mend the things that had been messed up. So my, I was like the tin man with my shoulder. Well, I thought of something that I'd left downstairs, jumped out of bed as I normally would, uh, cotton socks on my feet, <laughs> ran down the hall. I hit those steps. I think I only touched two of them with my feet. <laughs> I found myself at the bottom of those steps. I, it was like a bullet shot out of a gun. My wife hears this. It sounded like a bomb. I'm, I'm laying at the bottom of the steps. She hears it. She comes running out of the bed, running down the hall. I think she hit about two steps. As I look up in pain and agony, thinking I've dislocated my shoulder completely, I see my loving wife hurling towards me, yelling, I'm falling too. We both laid at the bottom of the steps wondering what in the world happened to those stairs. My daughter sheepishly peeks around the wall and says, I'm so sorry. 
I'm still getting counseling for that. <laughs> you know, when you're certain about something, um, that wax won't be applied to the stairs in your home, uh, you find out that that isn't true. Uh, you find all sorts of things out. You expect somebody to do this, they do that. You think you know this, and you find out this is the real truth here. Those things are funny in looking back on things like wax on stairs. It's not funny if you get Christ wrong. It's not funny if you get God wrong. In other words, you can mess up a lot of things. But if you mess up who Jesus Christ is and what true spiritual truth is, who God is, it's much worse than flying down steps. Uh, your soul's on the line here. And that's exactly why the gospel of Luke was written. It was written so that you could have certainty. So if you've come here today and the, and the foundations of your life seem to be shifting or you're a follower of Christ in which you, you just need encouragement, man, you're in the right place this morning. Because as we look through the passage today, we're going to see Luke begin to construct this logical, sequential look at the life of Jesus Christ, so that you can be certain, so that Theophilus can be certain, but that you can be. Don't we all need that today? Isn't that a gift to us? Now, Luke is a doctor. Uh, we talked about this last week. Some 25% of the New Testament is authored by Luke. And when I say that, I don't for one minute mean that God wasn't behind it. God superintended the writing of the Bible. We would consider that the Bible is inspired by God. It's inerrant in all the ways that, for example, a statement like the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy would say, and you can look that up. So when he's writing this, he is writing it from certainly his perspective, but God is overshadowing him. He's spent time with Paul. Not only has he written the Gospel of Luke, he's written the, the letter called Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. Now you might say, well, what, what right does he have to tell us information about Christ? Well, we saw that in the first segment, the first four verses, that he did an account of it. He followed all things closely for some time's past, and he wants to write an orderly account for you. Theophilus. Now, remember, he joined Paul in the middle of the second missionary journey. So in the letter to Acts, there's three uh, times where Paul made these circuits around to different churches. Those are called missionary journeys. And he was with him on the, big, or the middle of the second. So, very important. The second missionary journey started about 49 AD. And it lasted uh, for, for roughly 19 years. So, if you think of this idea of when Luke got involved, let's say just 10 years in, let's say a decade. So then he was with Paul for at least a decade. So when he says eyewitnesses, when he says that he examined things, it means that he was around the people who were around the situation. In other words, he's not making stuff up when he's talking about what people felt. You're going to see that today, what people experienced, what was encountered when no one else was around. He's writing those things down. Matter of fact, he was with Paul all the way to the very end when Paul was beheaded in Rome and he wrote to Timothy, he wrote this, and this is what Luke was writing 
as Paul was talking. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've, I've kept the faith. As Paul is in the Mamertine prison, and we've talked about this before, essentially a hole in the ground, a rock that had been carved out and people had been lowered into, he's dictating this, he's dictating this to, to Luke. And he's writing these things, and as Paul's writing to Timothy through the manuensis that Luke is, he is learning, he is growing, he's developing, he has a mission. And then he takes on the mission of creating an orderly account for Theophilus, because he too wants to endure. He too wants to be sober-minded. He too wants to fight the good fight to the end. So this is an intensely personal thing for Luke. He's not merely a reporter on the sideline asking for a play-by-play. He's invested. He's committed. And so he wants us to know the certainty of hope. And so as we find ourselves in this passage, it's important to ask ourselves a question. Well, if you wanted people to understand who Jesus Christ is and you want to give an orderly account, where do you start? I mean, really, where do you start? It sounds like an easy thing to solve, but let's remember something. From the end of Malachi to the beginning of the life of Christ, there was 400 years. 400 years. Now, just stop a second. Longer than America has existed, there's been that much time that the heavens have been silent. No prophets, no deliverers, just silence. What do you make of that? Where do you start because of that? And it makes perfect sense that Luke would start within the theme of the last verses of the last letter writ of the last prophet. It says this in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the last thing written. If you're writing an orderly account, you start there. And that's exactly what he does. So let's jump into it today, and let's see about what exactly uh, he talks about. He's beginning to bridge that gap between the two, and know that between the silence, it's not like nothing has happened. Terrible things have happened. Uh, Things like Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, 167 years before Jesus Christ is born, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Seleucid king, just think Syrian, He comes down into Jerusalem, and by the time uh, this takes place, the Jewish practice of following after God, the Jewish religion had been outlawed. They're trying to turn the Jewish people to be Hellenized. In other words, get with the times. Be like Greek culture. The Jews aren't buying it. Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a general, shows up in 167 BC and says, let me help you out a little bit. He takes a pig and sacrifices it on an altar to the god Zeus in the temple. He makes the priests eat pork. He sprinkles pork fat on the books, the holy prophetic writings, so that they can't be opened. 
He's trying to stamp out Judaism. Now, this is when God is silent. People are wondering, where's God? A group of people rise up, and there's a conflict. But more than that, we have the situation as time goes by, you've got the Romans come in. They displace the Seleucid dynasty. And we have in 63 BC, the general Pompey comes into Jerusalem and takes over everything. And when he, I mean, he takes over everything, he does. They come under the boot of the Roman Empire, the people of Israel. Now remember, this is a theocratic people, that God is our ruler, not Rome. God, where are you? What are you doing? That's the backdrop to the start of the book of Luke. Very important to understand that. If you were in that time, you're bewildered, you're wondering, you're hanging on, you're believing for the things that you've been told to be true, that God has an unconditional covenant with you. But if you're a Jewish person and you're in Israel, you are longing for the day that you can be certain again that God is in your life and shown up on the scene, not merely in the rituals, in the things that you do, but actively engaged and care for you in your situation. That's the situation we find ourselves. Let's go ahead and read. Verses 5 through 13. And Mark, this is the beginning of the gospel. Everything he says is intentionally placed to help you to have certainty and bridge the gap that we've just talked about. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statues of the Lord. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. The angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. First of all, let's look at verse Five and six. And let's think about the people that were involved. Again, as we've said, he's intentionally writing this to create an understanding of the times. And he starts off in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Um, that is a marker. That is a marker in which, Theophilus, I want you to understand exactly what was taking place. And no better place to start than who was ruling at the time. Now, it's incredibly important that when you hear the days of Herod, king of Judah, there should be a dislocation in your thinking, meaning that the king of Judah, Herod. When someone mentioned Herod's name back in these times, the intended reaction would be that of a chill running down your spine. Herod was not a nice guy. We've talked about Herod before, but it's important to recognize that he ruled for 37 years, and he was actually given that title of king of Judea in 34 BC by the Roman Empire. 
He was a vassal of the Roman Empire, meaning when they said jump, Herod said how high. Herod was somebody who did the bidding, and in the midst of doing the bidding of Rome, if he kept things together, then he was richly rewarded. He had a long leash in what he could do when it came to how he enforced what he wanted the people to be about and how they wanted them to respond. While he had a long reach, or excuse me, a long leash, he was also not stable. Some have actually called him a benevolent monster, kind of a Jekyll and Hyde leadership. And let me tell you why. He came to power amid a bloodbath in 37 BC by uh, pushing out the Seleucid people. He was not Jewish. He was an Edomian. He was from Eden. Now, you might say, well, why does that matter? That really matters because he's the king of Judah here. And yet the people of Edom were people that opposed the Jewish people in time past. Matter of fact, uh, in Obadiah, God judged the people who were from Edom from their pride because they, during the Babylonian captivity, they stood by and watched the temple and the people be driven out of Israel. They stood by as innocent bystanders as people were slaughtered, as the, the temple was ransacked. They just stood back. They're from the southern part of Israel, and they just watched from a distance. Even though they were descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, they just stood back. Matter of fact, more than that, when they were down in Egypt and coming back in Numbers 20, 14 through 21, it was the people of Edom that when Moses said, hey, can we pass through your land? Can we just kind of go through your land to get to the promised land? God has called us to come to the promised land King said, no, can't go through our land. Hold on a second. We're from the same, same family here, aren't we? No, we don't think so. So remember, this is, this is Herod. He's an Edomian. He is effectively from a people that didn't help Israel, had no interest in helping Israel, and had been cursed by God. So right there where it says king of Judah, on that point, shivers should go down your spine. Man, there's a bad guy in control. Because he was. Herod knew this would make things difficult, so he did something that was incredibly political. He married someone, a Jewish heiress, by the name of Miriam. And he did that to appease the people, to kind of sidle up to them, you could say make him feel like he was part, but he was never part of them. Matter of fact, um, he did other things like in 25 BC, there was a famine and Herod had gathered the taxes and he took a cut of the taxes and, and gave them back to the people. And in 25 BC, he melted down objects that were in his own personal palace and sold those things so that people could get food. Now you might say, wow, what a great guy trying to make up for a bad reputation, a bad history. He also murdered his brother-in-laws. Matter of fact, he murdered that wife that he had mentioned, or that he had married, the Jewish heiress. Matter of fact, he murdered her mother. He went on to, as you know, seek to murder every child two years and younger in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area when he heard that the Magi had come to, to worship a king. You see, Herod, if, if he was for you, great. He was against you, run for cover. This guy was a madman. He was a benevolent monster. 
more than that, when it came to that, you would say, well, what exactly did he do well? I mean, when we look at his life, he ruled for a, a long period of time. Matter of fact, 77 years he lived and he ruled for uh, over 30 years. So how is it that he was able to do all these things and not be deposed? Well, as I said, he had this Jekyll and Hyde dynamic. He, number one, I think did, he kept terrorism down. When you look at Israel at that time, periodically people would, would come up and nobody likes terrorism. It would unsettle the country. Herod had the ability to roll soldiers in at a moment's notice. Matter of fact, Herod actually had a personal bodyguard of 2,000 soldiers just for him. 2,000 soldiers that he could make things right quick if he needs to. The other thing that he did is he had incredible buildings that he built. Matter of fact, some of them... Uh, are considered some of the greatest building projects the world has ever seen. Let me list just a few of these. Caesarea Maritima it took 12 years to build the city. It's on the coast. It's a coastal port. Uh, matter of fact, it was one of the first of its kind. And arguments could be had that it was the first of its kind. An artificial port that stretched out into the Mediterranean that increased the goods in Israel exponentially, creating the one of the arteries on the Silken Road coming all the way from India, all the way to the Mediterranean that could take things up into Rome, things like perfume, that the only place in the world that this perfume was made was in Israel, and Rome loved it. And Herod made a lot of money, and so did people off it. Matter of fact, he created a Roman temple there. It was 164 acres. It had a theater. It had a uh, hippodrome, a place where they could race horses around, enormous theater that looked over the Mediterranean. It was the place where muckety-mucks hung out. It was the place where he could kind of ply his political wares. Matter of fact, one interesting aspect of this particular port in Caesarea Maritima is he actually built a, uh, a sewer handling system. Uh, it's kind of gross, but it's important. Get a bunch of people in a city. You've got to deal with the sewage. And what he did is he created a system by which uh, the sewage would go to the edge of the Mediterranean, and when the tide would rise, it would wash it clean. So Caesarea Maritima was this place in which you didn't smell a stench, not like Rome. You didn't smell that. It was a, it was a, it was a jewel. That was something Herod did. More than that, uh, not only built that, he had a place, uh, Jericho. You probably have heard of Jericho, no doubt. Jericho was a summer getaway that he actually built things like a theater, a reception hall, a sunken garden, swimming pools, bathhouses, horse and chariot, race course, gymnasium. One of the interesting things about this is, is he would invite people from other nations to come during the time of the, of the winter to be able to spend time there. One of the reasons why is because it was 300 and uh, 3,200 feet lower in elevation. Matter of fact, it was 825 feet below sea level. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because the weather there, when it came to the wintertime, you could go there and it was completely different weather. 825 feet. Matter of fact, Jericho is the lowest city underneath sea level anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. Matter of fact, New Orleans, if you're familiar with that, it's eight feet below sea level. Jericho's 825. And he would invite people there and he would wine them and dine them. And that's how he kept his power for so long. The greatest thing that 
that Herod ever built was the temple complex in Jerusalem, whether it was the, the platform that was 861 feet large that Solomon built. Herod came in and he expanded it to 172,000 yards. In other words, he expanded it in every direction except for the eastern side. The people loved that because he was pouring into their identity as a Jewish people. You could almost say maybe he was making up for his Idumean past when they watched the, the artifacts leave the temple. He was skilled in that way. More than that, he made the Roman portico that was destroyed by the Romans and Antonio Fortress, in which the Roman guards would be off the side of the platform. And the most exquisite thing that Herod did is he created the temple. He built that so that the people of Israel could worship their God. Now, this is a big deal because in building, making it more elaborate than it already was, he did something that was able to endear him to the people. Let me read what Josephus writes about the temple that we can only imagine that must, what it must have looked like. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes from the solar rays. So you come up over the Mount of Olives, you approach Jerusalem, and the sun is refracting off the gold. You can't even look at the temple. It's this jewel in the middle of the temple or in the middle of the platform you associate with. It's amazing. The approaching strangers that appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all of it that was not overclayed with gold, was of purest white. This is what Herod did. This is what he was about. When it comes to who he was, he was this benevolent monster. And when he writes about him, everybody would know the proximity in which this writing is about. For years, for centuries to come, when it talks about those days of Herod. His death uh, is interesting because he died at Herodium, or we think in Jericho, we're not totally sure, but before his death, he had built an elaborate tomb for himself in Herodium. It was a summer getaway that was just south, about three miles from Bethlehem, and which ironically overlooked the fields in which the shepherds would have been watching their sheep at night. Ironic that Herod, this madman who wanted the king to not come, was born under his nose in Bethlehem. A little commercial, by the way, we are planning to go back there in November if you're interested in going into Israel, and you could stand in Herodium and overlook those shepherd fields. But that's another, that's a commercial for another day. His last days were an awful lot like his life, uh, benevolent but vindictive. Matter of fact, on the word of his death, he'd given orders that um, the nobles in the area, the significant people, the people that were uh, the muckety mucks of the area, were supposed to be gathered in the area just off of Herodium in this gathering area by this large pool that he'd created. And when they find out that he has died, all of the nobles and significant people in Israel are to be murdered instantly. And the reason why for that is because he knew no one else would mourn his death, so he wanted mourning in Israel, and he created mourning by setting up 
the murder of innocent people. That's how he died. In the days of Herod, king of Judah. Notice the contrast, the second part of that. Look in verse 5. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. What a contrast. This is important. Luke is writing, and we've got these big ticket name Herod, king of Judah. Everybody knew he was. Then he turned the corner. I've made you aware of the kind of the political insider. But now he turns the corner to a person you only know his first name. City isn't mentioned. It's a common name. Tons of people were called Zachariah back in this day. He was a group of about 16 to 18,000 priests. So where it says he was a priest, there's no distinction here. He's just a common person. You could actually say he's a nobody. And the division of Abijah, simply all that means is that he was assigned to the division. And what he would do is in two different weeks throughout the year, he would serve at the temple. Because there were 16 to 18,000 of these guys, they would rotate and they would serve in the temple doing the priestly duties. And where it says or he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, um, her name was Elizabeth, which means God is faithful, according to Exodus 6.23, that was the name of Aaron's wife. Aaron, the high priest in the Old Testament. In other words, in all of these things where Luke is writing these things down, they're nobodies, but you start realizing they're very devout. They're serious people. They're committed. That's what you need to know when it comes to that. And where it says there, and they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's very, very important. That idea there, they were righteous, dikaios. It's the word there, meaning that they were considered righteous before God. Matter of fact, in Luke 2, 25 through 27, Simeon is also called a righteous person. Now, what does that mean that they're righteous? It means that they're right with God. Now, how is that possible? Because Jesus Christ hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died for the sins. How is it possible you can have somebody who is righteous? Well, being a priest, he would have known the passages in which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, 2, and 3, where he talks about Abraham was just not justified by works, but he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Same word. Dikaiosina. It's the idea of an extension of the word, not just righteous, he was righteousness. So the idea that Abraham simply believed that God would send a redeemer, and God said, on the basis of your faith, I declare you righteous. That's an amazing thing. In other words, your, your, your sins are going to be taken care of on the basis of your faith. And these two, Elizabeth, and Zechariah had that same belief, no doubt, because they read passages in the Old Testament like this. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No doubt that they read that. And they remembered the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God would send an offspring. And they placed their faith in that. These no-name people who served among the masses. And notice the next thing that this says. They walk blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In other words, they not only believed, but there was fruit to their belief. They sought to be blameless, obeying the commandments, obeying the statutes. In other words, they took God seriously. That's important for you to understand because look at the pain they felt in verse 7. But, just the turn there, they did all this stuff, it's like symbols and a band, and they're righteous and blameless and obeyed the commands, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's very important you read that slowly. They had no child. Barren. Advanced in years. That word advanced in years indicates commonly that it applied to people over 60 years of age. So let's imagine uh, if they were married most likely in their teen years, 15, 16. They've lived for what? 40 years? 45 years? 50, no kids. When they were introduced at family gatherings, they were introduced as Zachariah and Elizabeth. And without a doubt, as they were introduced to people, I bet they heard whispers. They, they don't have any kids. Oh, they're the, they're the people who have, don't have any kids. They're the relatives that, that don't have kids. As the kids are growing up in the area, as they see people that are married around the same time as them, they see their kids. They see their kids grow, get married, have kids. They see those kids have kids. They have no kids. You got to feel this. The pain they felt was excruciating. And when you add on top of that, this, the pain they felt in verse 7, they would regularly, I'm sure, think about verses like this. Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The scripture that they knew well that told them of a coming Messiah was also a scripture that created a weight in which they wondered why. The pain they felt was incredible. The custom of the day, the rabbis said that there were seven people, types of people that were excommunicated from God. The first was the Jew who had no wife, and the second was the Jew whose wife had no child. In this passage, Luke is taking you into the underbelly of what was going on in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, what is happening in the political stratosphere of this time the pain they feel. And he's inviting you to be part of the story. He's inviting you to consider, is this the way that you would start a story? Is this the way that 
Uh, if you're going to talk about the coming Messiah, wouldn't you come with like a band and a military? Wouldn't you make a grand proclamation? If you are writing fiction, yes. But he's not writing fiction. He's giving you the backstage feelings and emotions, the cues to see that there are real people involved in this. And God, although he's been silent for 400 years, is not silent anymore. And he wants this so that Theophilus can be sure that God uses ordinary people, ordinary pain, distinct pain in the lives of people, to weave a story in their life about how Jesus came and walked among us. When we pick this up next time, we'll get into this a little bit more as the band is coming up. It's important for you to remember and think about the ideas that we've just briefly touched on in the passage this morning. If you're thinking that you're a nobody, you're in good company. If you're thinking that God is distant and far away, Elizabeth and Zechariah totally understand that. The Jewish people would have totally understood that. But this is the thing about God. God works through ordinary means to create an extraordinary story. And as we continue to walk out the the story that Luke has written, and we're going to see next time about Elizabeth and Zechariah, God gives them a child, and he gives them a child that will be known as the greatest man who's ever lived before Christ was born. And so this morning, if you're here and you're wondering, what is God doing? I can tell you what he's doing. I don't know your story, but what he was doing in your life is he's trying to get your attention to make much of himself. He's trying to get your attention because the reality is we're all worshipers. Every one of us here worships something. Every one of us here trusts something. But what you need to know is the only thing that you can really trust with your life is Christ, with God. And that's why he's writing this letter this account of the Gospel of Luke, so you can be certain of that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for your kindness as we just begin to pull apart the layers of this story. We're reminded of your intentionality. We're reminded that Christianity is not supposed to be one of those things where people live out in the countryside, but it's in the the push and shove inner city world. It's in the the difficult pain that people had underneath the reign of Herod. It's through the pain that this world is in because of sin that you begin to weave a story of hope and reconciliation through two no-name people. And you love to do that because then you're seen as mighty and great. You're given the credit. You're given the honor because you take ordinary people awful lot like people like us. And you do something extraordinary through their life so that you're clearly seen. That's the kind of God you are. And we're so thankful for you. We're thankful that you've been kind to us. And any in this room who've never trusted in you, would you do work in their life? Would you draw them to yourself? Because we can get everything in life. And yet if we miss you, we've missed everything. Thank you for your kindness and providing for us. Make much of yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.